The future of project management is changing fast. On Projectified with PMI, we'll help you stay ahead of the trends as we talk about what that means for the industry and for everyone involved. I'm Stephen W. May for Projectified with PMI. For an easy way to stay up to date on Projectified with PMI, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and PMI.org slash podcast. In this episode, we discuss team leadership with speaker, author, and executive coach, Andy Kaufman. Andy outlines what makes a team. He defines the mission of team leadership and argues a compelling case for the surprising role of challenge and risk in bringing out the best in the teams you lead. Andy, I have been looking forward to having this conversation with you. Um, I've had the opportunity to talk with you a little bit outside of uh, today's podcast, but having you here and having you face-to-face is a uh, special treat. So thanks for being a part of it. Well, thanks, Stephen. I'm really looking forward to the discussion. You have a special emphasis in your work Mm. on teams, on team effectiveness, on leadership, and we'll get into a little more about uh, what you mean by that. Mm. And I don't know if there's a topic that is more valuable and more appropriate to people who make their livings and make their lives around leading and participating Mm. in uh, major projects. Mm. Yeah. When I think about the role that projects play in modern business, it is in many ways the lifeblood of those businesses. You know, you think about the fact that people are constantly saying, you know, the world is changing, business is constantly changing. Well, those changes all happen somehow in the context of projects. Yeah, Am right. I overstating? No, 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 no. Okay. No, and uh, and so associated that with is with teams. But right. I can't tell you the number of times I'll I'll be working with somebody and I say, now you need to pass that by your team. And the person's right. like, Andy, I don't know what you're talking about. I am right. the team. <laughs> they're like, it's not like they're, looking, the, they're uh, kind of looking behind them like, who is it you think is back here? But, but the truth is, it is a collection of stakeholders. It, it is effectively, right. we have to get work done in projects. We get work done through people. So yeah. it's projects and well, teams. Well, I think in the same way that sometimes people don't think of themselves as by career as a project manager, but you mm. look at what they're doing and you say, mm. I don't care what you call yourself. You yeah. are managing projects oh, or yeah. you are managing a project. Mm. I think in the same way, mm-hmm. whether or not there's a charter that mm-hmm. has a list of names on page two mm-hmm. under the heading team, <laughs> right, right. you know, yeah. you look around and you say, these are the people you're doing this with. Mm-hmm. They may or may not be committed to it, but that's the team that you're working with. So, Absolutely. so I think that fits in your, your mm-hmm. sort of broad, totally. your broad Absolutely. definition. Okay. Absolutely. All right. So first, let's jump right in. When when you talk about leadership, again, yeah. a special emphasis for you, yeah. w- w- what's in there? How big is that basket? What do you mean by leadership? Right, right. Yeah, it's a great question. So I've had the opportunity to interview a number of different people like John Cotter from Harvard. And uh, I may not get it word perfect, but his definition is that uh, we're doing leadership if we articulate the, the vision, so we define that, we align people with it, we inspire them despite obstacles. So that's, mm-hmm. a, that's a pretty standard, there's a place we need to go and we need to get aligned, you know, people aligned there. Um, I've had uh, Jim Kuzis on our podcast twice. He and his writing partner have sold millions of copies of the Leadership Challenge. And he says it a slightly different. It's, he goes, leadership is a relationship between those who aspire to lead and those who choose to follow, which I think is a really good definition in that some people say, 
well, I want that role, Stephen, because I'll get a raise. <laughs> it's, yeah, it's, they, right. they aspire for a title or they aspire for a salary increase, but they don't yeah. aspire to lead. Right. And, and, and then that second part of it, they choose to follow, which is an important part because sometimes people think, well, I got the title. I don't care if it's project manager. I don't care what it is. If I've got the title, I'm the boss. But people, you could argue in, in many respects, everyone Everyone who's leading a team, they're leading a team of volunteer employees. I mean, they're volunteering their effort. They're volunteering. So when I'm talking about leadership, I'm, I'm, it's, it's the broadest sense of on a personal basis, um, what do I aspire and how, who, are, who am I been asked to, to, to take this team and what, do they want to follow? Will they choose to follow me? And not because necessarily I'm even the boss. Maybe it's I'm trying to influence a stakeholder. I, but I want them to follow with the idea. Right. And even beyond those definitions, uh, there's this guy named Justin Menkes who wrote a book, uh, Better Under Pressure. It's, it's actually my favorite definition of leadership. It is maximizing potential. Mm. And he goes, it's maximizing potential in ourselves and in the people that we lead. And what I love about that one is it, it, I think too often what we think is, Stephen, when you're running your projects, when I'm running my projects, whoever's listening to us, they're running their projects, we think our job is to hit a date, to deliver. But if we also load in the fact that it's to deliver results, but it's to maximize their potential. And though it's not politically correct to say this, and please understand what I'm saying, not everyone has the same potential. They do as a human, for sure. But some people don't. They want to stay technical. They don't want to go into management. They don't want to be in you right. know, their right. potential. So it's for every person around us, what can we do to maximize their potential as we go about delivering? And that, that definition has served me well. Of, am I maximizing yeah. my potential? Yeah. And then the, then the people around. No, I love that. I think, I think it places a very high bar. Yeah, I mean, right. I, love, I love the idea of it. But, yeah. I, but when you think about the idea that I'm not just leading to achieve a particular defined objective, there you go. but to def- to in- increase and maximize the potential of the people around me, yeah. that's a that's a different task. Yeah, right. you know, yeah. may- maybe it's it contains the first task, mm-hmm. but there's another really big mm-hmm. one added to it. Mm-hmm. That responsibility to sort of own the development and the uh, effectiveness mm-hmm. of those around us. That's and, that's powerful. And you can maybe even if it maybe stretch it a little bit further that much of what agile is is maximizing the potential the value we can deliver so this it's it's maybe somewhat related how do we maximize the value of what we can get out of this project how do we maximize the value out of the people around us how do we, how do we maximize the value that we could provide if we said you know what um, I wanted to go to that conference that Stephen's at right now, but I just didn't take the time. They're not maximizing their potential, potentially. You know, it's yeah. like investing in their PMI chapter yeah, yeah. and going to those meetings and right. networking. And so it's, I, I found it to be a good guiding principle. Are you and I, are we maximizing the potential of the people around us and yeah. ourselves? Yeah, that's powerful. Yeah. I want to go back to something you said a couple of minutes ago. You were talking about this this difference between those who – uh, aspire to lead and yeah. those who really are aspiring to what they believe are the fruits of having right. been in leadership. <laughs> right. And so let me ask you, if, if the motivation is different, so there are those that truly aspire to mm-hmm. lead mm-hmm. and those who uh, decide to follow, mm-hmm. and then you've got those who are really motivated to what they perceive as leadership roles because they believe they're the mm-hmm. fruits of that on the other side. Mm-hmm. Does it matter? Mm-hmm. Does it matter? What's the difference? Yeah. So I've had over 250 coaching clients, and this has only happened once. But this person I was working with said, my boss, 
they they sit at their cubicle. They sit on their desk. They don't they they don't make decisions. They they'll, they just you know when we need something done, they'll they'll be like, well, what do you guys think? And they they don't they don't lead. They and and uh, at one point, this person said, I asked my boss, like, don't you think you ought to make this call? And he goes, I don't want to make this sort of call. You know, I don't I don't want to do this. And so does it does it matter? Yeah, it, he would say it it just it. It, it, it slowed everything down. Things didn't get decided. People were unmotivated. I had another client who worked at a place where the VP was like six months from retirement. Yeah. Didn't want to make any decisions because yeah. I don't want to screw it up. And, you know, too often people think, well, it's, it's just a small circle that's going to be impacted by this lack of leadership. But really, you look at those just two examples, there's this ripple effect of impact from apathy to uh, entropy. You know, it just slows things down. Things break down. We don't innovate because of it. So, you know, I don't want to overstate it, but I I think there's a way you could say that everything that we're working on rises and falls on leadership. And it doesn't mean just on one person, but even the shared leadership that we're all willing to say, hey, I'm willing to maximize my potential. I'm willing to, to grow and to learn from this. It, it, where are we going? What are roles and responsibilities? Right? That's just like basic blocking and tackling for project yeah. management. Yeah. So I want to come back, of course, to the leadership topic. But before we do, I want to connect it over to mm-hmm. the team's topic and yeah, the team's right. concept. So yeah. you do a lot of work mm-hmm. around team effectiveness. Mm-hmm. Is so define it. Define what you mean by teams, yeah, and then right. tell me: is that changing? Right. Is what what we thought of as a team yesterday is that different from mm-hmm. what it is tomorrow, mm-hmm. uh, or are the teams the same as you know building the pyramids or yeah, you know yeah. going going to Mars in yeah, a few yeah. years? So uh, I've had the opportunity to speak on every continent except Antarctica. I haven't worked out any uh, clients there yet, but I was over in Kenya and I asked somebody about tell me about your soccer team, and they're like. A lot of talented people that can't win a game. And that's a picture for the fact that a team is not just a collection of individuals. Because you might even have strong individuals, but there's something about it's more than just a group of individuals, even if there's talent there. There's something about that team on mission together. Okay. And so I, I'm sure there are quite uh, more brilliant academic definitions of it, but the thing I'm looking for is we're a team, even if we're not on, in the org chart a team, if we are the collection of individuals, but we are on mission and we are working together towards that same goal. How do you identify it? So you show up at a place, you're going to have the opportunity to do some work with leaders or a key leader with his or her team. What is the earmark you look for to tell you whether or not that yeah. team is on mission? Yeah. So um, Patrick Lencioni has got a really good model. I mean, there's plenty of models, so it's, it's as good as any. And at the base of his team model is trust. Okay, so I, I'm not going to say this happens on a regular basis, but just often enough where I'll tell you, Stephen, you walk in and it's like a fog. It, it, it's it's, it's uh People, you can just tell that there's a finger pointing culture, and people are you know looking around their shoulder, and it seems like they're always covering their backside. And so, so trust at the basis of does it? Uh, Lencioni says, are people willing to be vulnerable with each other? Right. And so you can tell that in a meeting. Is everything like green, green, green? Everything green, green. Yeah, everything's fine, on schedule. Right. Or, or is there somebody? Can somebody um, say, you know what? Like at a daily stand-up, can they go? You know. 
I'm struggling with this. And I was struggling with that yesterday. I need some help. That's a pretty good sign for a team. Yeah. You know, um, he puts conflict right on top of that. Is, is there artificial harmony? So uh, uh, a way that I measure that one is when a subject comes up, does everyone look at the boss first to see how to answer? Uh, does, if the boss says something, are people willing to be a bit of a devil's advocate, so to speak? Would they go, well, Stephen, I, I don't know if I agree with you on that. And, you know, like, or, or, or what about this? The academics call it cognitive conflict versus affective. Cognitive is, it's, it's conflict, but it's, about, it's trying to move the subject forward. It's trying to get to a better solution. And, and one of the things I work with teams on, on this one, Stephen, is if they don't have cognitive conflict, that's not a good sign. Right. <laughs> that's not a good right. sign. People are, maybe it's a sign they don't care. So that's one of the little things I'm taking a pulse on the team of, can, is it safe to bring up contrarian opinions or do you kind of get looked that look of like, dude, you're not really a team player here. You know, that happens yeah. with risk sometimes. Yeah. So there's conflict, there's um, commitment, feign, feigned buy-in. So I'll look for that. Do people just go, yeah, I can hit that on Friday, Stephen. <laughs> but it's like everyone knows that they're not going to hit it by Friday. So those would just be a couple examples of, uh, and that's directly from Lencioni's uh, model there, the, the kind of the bottom levels. He has more on top of that, but accountability and results and things like that. But usually, usually, well, first of all, usually I don't get called if everything's going perfect anyway. So <laughs> it does make my yeah. job a little easier. Right, exactly. <laughs> but uh, I'll, I'll look for that trust thing. And, and uh, you know, Stephen Covey's line, I think, is one of the best, that you develop trust by being trustworthy, let me pause on that for a second, yeah, because yeah. again, this is something that I've been paying a lot of attention to and, and talking with clients about and working with clients on. Mm. Where is this coming from? Mm. Where is this trust, this trust issue coming from? Because yeah. I think it really is. I don't oh, think yeah, it's just yeah. because you and I go to places where disruptive things are happening. Yeah, yeah. I think there's an issue. Where, oh, sure. where is it coming from? Yeah. So um, let me just give it to you in a story. There's a guy named Keith Mernian who wrote a book called uh, Do Nothing is the title of it. And his point is not that you do nothing. Or they take an application. Right, exactly. Yeah, right, exactly. That's the joke, right? <laughs> but, he, but he goes, the higher you get up in an organization, it should be perceived you're doing nothing. Now, once again, people are like, oh, I know executives like that. But he goes, it's not that they're doing nothing. They're doing nothing in the day-to-day of today. They're looking further down the road. It's the premise of his book. Leaders need to look further down the road. One of the messages in the book is you and I need to trust people more than they've earned. And so I'll bring that up in like a keynote or workshop and I'll say, all right, anybody have trust issues here? Anybody struggle with the fact that he says we're supposed to trust people more than they've earned? And everyone's like, yeah. And I'll say, why? And the pattern is that people say this. They go, well, my name's on it, Stephen. And if they drop the ball and my name's on it, I get burned. And you don't have to work too long before that's going to happen. And so as soon as, you get, as soon as someone drops the ball and my name is on it and I look bad and I take the hit for it, and so I think there are a lot of people, most organizations are pretty lean, and I'm not talking philosophy, I'm just talking just like staffing. And yeah, just sort like, of skeleton yeah. crew Right, staffing, exactly, yeah. yeah. And so it's the, listen, if I trust people more than they've earned, um, you know, I, well, in fact, they, his, Mernian's point, I think, would be, you have to because we're so skeleton. You have to trust people more than they've earned, or you won't ever go home at night, or you'll just be stressed out. And so you have, and to be fair to uh, Mernian, if someone's earned a two, they don't say give the person a 10, but if they're a two, give them a four. And so that's some, sometimes the way we'll t- try to talk about it of can you trust them a little bit more? But I think a lot of times people feel like, you know what, 
um, there are too many bullseyes to go around and I don't want that bullseye on me. Yeah. And if I trust somebody else, I'm going to look bad and I'll take the hit. Yeah. And I'm not willing to do it. Yeah. I, uh, I, I served a client, a large old co- you know, company, about a hundred years old, yeah. large, yeah. wealthy company. A lot of history. And uh, yeah, a lot of history. And you, you started realizing fairly soon mm-hmm. that that there were so many signs of that lack mm-hmm. of trust mm-hmm. that could kind of go down the checklist that you offered earlier. Mm-hmm. And it was interesting. One of the things, one of the, the earmarks that began to emerge is that if you provided any kind of message that was tough to hear, mm-hmm. tough for a senior, a senior person, senior executive to hear, the tendency was to respond with a kind of offense. Like you have, you have offended me. They may not use those terms, but it was that you have offended me. Mm. And I thought that's an interesting kind of coping mechanism where it wasn't just someone as an external consultant, but they couldn't say tough things to each other either. Yeah. That's an artificial harmony. Yeah. Yeah. Because the, yeah. uh, Somebody told me at his company, it's one of those companies, and this might've been the true of your place that you're talking about. uh, They have generally speaking a no layoff policy. Mm. And so once you're there, you're kind of there for life, mm-hmm. which you think would be a really good thing. But one of the interesting dysfunctions, he said, is that if you tick somebody off in year one, you're with them for the next three decades. <laughs> so, right. so it turns into this, you got to play nice, nice. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I think, although... Yeah, he, we're he, sort of all on the same life raft here. Yeah, right. and I don't think he said yeah. it this way, but I think that offense of like, how dare you? I mean, you're, you're just trying to throw me under the bus here. You know? Right, yeah. right. Yeah, interesting. interesting, interesting. So, again, going back to the teams concept, mm-hmm. you've done uh, a lot of work around, and you've you've talked a lot about and helped a lot of organizations around team alignment. Mm. What have you learned about team alignment? Mm. If you're going to give me the you're going to give me the two minutes, you know, Stephen, here's how to get smart on team alignment. Where do I start? What's most important? Yeah, the the. I guess one of the interesting things is as I get older, I have less satisfaction for simple answers to complex problems. <laughs> but, <laughs> well, that's, you know what I'm saying? You know, that's a reflection of my incredible youth. No, well, well that, no, uh, but no, but for example, sure. so um, the simple answer is we have to have a firm understanding of what we as project managers would say, the charter sort of stuff. Mm-hmm. What's the business case for, you know, it's, it's the equivalent of we're taking that hill and the why, if people mm. don't know the why, yeah. I had the opportunity to interview uh, Robert Cialdini, the foremost researcher and writer on influence. And he's like, the word because is the most influential word in the English language. If people don't know the because, if they don't know the why are we doing this, it's, it's difficult to kind of get alignment. And, um, and so at, at the high level, I can't get anywhere with alignment if, if we don't know that. But the, the more complex answer is how culture just factors. I know the work you've done, you could do a whole episode on just how culture affects things like this. But to get a team to be aligned without understanding the culture, I had the opportunity to interview um, Ed Shine, the MIT fellow who coined the term corporate culture. And after I interviewed him, I, uh, within less than a month, I was at a client and the COO goes, Andy, I want you to help us um, change the culture here. And so I, I call Ed. I'm like, yeah. Hey, so Ed, a company wants me to help change the culture. What do I do? And Ed must be in his 90s now. It's like talking to Yoda. I mean, it's yeah, unbelievable. Right. And uh, Ed goes, run. <laughs> <laughs> he goes, you can't do it. And so his, his right. point is without, you can't do it from the outside. Anyway, his, his point was. 
And there may even be exceptions to what he's saying, but his point is if they're not willing to do it internally, and I know you've, you've made a wonderful living doing that, helping people kind of think through and how do you change and do that. But his point is that um, alignment without understanding the culture of the organization and the history and the backstory and the attitudes and behaviors that it's, it's much more difficult. So I like to say that I never knew more about having kids than before. I never knew more about child raising than before I had kids, right? right. I was an expert right. until I had the kids. Right. And so as much as I love working with teams and as much as uh, they're really good established models, it's always this trying to fight against my hesitant, trying to fight against my jumping to conclusions about what it takes for this team to get aligned, that I really have to understand the culture around it. I, yeah. I need to understand the backstory, yeah. the history, yeah. the sponsorship, the competing priorities and all the other stuff. So Yeah. So let's a- apply all of this thinking to something that we know is a huge topic mm. in project management, and, mm. and not only for project management professionals, but mm. for people that recognize projects are an integral part of moving their businesses forward, mm-hmm. which is the application of, of agile approaches, mm-hmm. yeah. agile methods, agile mm-hmm. techniques, agile mindsets. Yeah. One of the things that we hear about are self-directed, self-led, mm-hmm. self-organizing teams. Mm-hmm. Where does leadership fit into this emerging model? So one of the many things I love about the Agile movement is uh, a, an aversion to dogma. So um, I would say that it's going to depend on the culture of that organization. So the more bureaucratic organizations I work with, to say that it's a self-organizing team or a self-managed or self-led team, they, they would just be like... <laughs> That makes for great copies, sell lots of books, but there's no way that's going to work here. It just culturally, it's just there's no way. Uh, something I learned from that discussion with Ed Shine was uh, a formula for culture: A plus B equals C. Attitudes plus behavior equals culture. A plus B equals C. And so, if I take that, what are the attitudes about leadership? Too many people think leadership is a role or a title. So then we have to kind of say, all right, well. Let's not call it self-led teams, you know, self-organizing or helping people see their role. But the attitudes and the behaviors, too many of the bigger organizations, their attitudes and behaviors about this is it's all title, it's all hierarchy, it's all where you are in the org chart. So I I think this is a, um, it's aspirational and it's good. If you can get a team and I've, I've had a couple over the years that I would say truly were self-led, where even though I was in a position as a supervisory sort of role, I didn't have to say, you need to work late tonight, Stephen. I didn't have to say, you know, get this, you know, hit this day. They were just so bought in. And I'm telling you, <laughs> to be on a team like that is a whole different way of working. I mean, it, it, so much more can be done. But that's not how most organizations uh, have hired. It's not how they've uh, it's not how HR groups think, you know, they, they think of career ladders and um, it, it's, it's going to, it's going to take a while to make that shift. So uh, aspirational, which doesn't mean it's impossible because it is happening. It's just not as much as I think we'd like to think, but to move that direction, I think is a good idea. And the thing about, you know, when it comes to motivation, motivation theory, research on this is pretty clear. You can't motivate someone into being you can't force someone into being motivated, right? You can't say, we are now self-organizing and we will all be motivated and we will all, you know, 
you know, you can't force it. You have to set the conditions under which people are willing to do it. And so regardless of what our role is, what can I do to set the conditions in which people will be motivated? And often I find that's some version of clarity. Why are we doing this? Where are we going? Why are you on the team? Um, what are, what's our version of these processes? And, and so I would say there is so much good in the Agile movement that people shouldn't have to feel like our teams have to be perfect there right away. But if we can move towards maximizing their potential of saying, listen, you know, I know you're, you're, you think yourself as a QA person, but the truth is because if you've tested so many bad user interfaces, <laughs> you can help us with user interface design. You know, you don't have to sit in just the straitjacket of a particular role and move them towards kind of a broader uh, uh, ability to deliver value. Quite frankly, I mean, like I work with organizations as big as the UN and as small as, you know, small manufacturing firms. And if I, if I went to a team at the UN and said, you need to be a self-organizing team, you know, they'd be like, that's not in our employee manual. I mean, it's not, that is not part of our attitude or behavior. Yeah. I mean, that's just not it. Yeah. So what's the theory? If we say it's aspirational. So we don't have a lot of really strong functioning models to look at. Uh, is the theory that the that somehow leadership is no longer needed, or is the theory that leadership as a function gets dispersed across a dozen different people, or right. what happens yeah, to the leadership right. in the in the aspirational Absolutely. model? So um, I know some of our agile listeners are just itching right now. They're like, "We do have a self organizing team. We have it." So I want to be clear: it does happen. It does happen. But um, I will say, because just the organizations I intersect with across continents, it, that's not the model yet. It's moving that way. But there was a book called uh, Extraordinary Groups, I think is the name of it. And this is what they said. Extraordinary Groups, one of their things, they had a bunch of different aspects of it, Extraordinary Groups, but one of them, this is how they said it, Stephen, they said shared leadership. Mm. So it wasn't necessarily what we would say in project management is strong sponsorship. It wasn't that because that kind of implies hierarchy, but it was shared leadership. And I think Justin Minkus's uh, maximizing potential model could be there. Of As a team, are, are, are we as a team maximizing our potential? Like, is, uh, could, could our velocity be increased? You know, that might be an example. We, we can maximize that. And, and are we uh, carrying the load appropriately? And you... You have to be willing to have a team of people that are willing to look at it and go, you know what? I think we can do better. I don't remember. I don't remember who it was, Stephen, but it was a very depressing. I think it was actually it was a weird title. The book was something like "Why Contented Cows Give Better Milk" or something like that. It was about it was about employee engagement. <laughs> the guy's from Wisconsin, you know, something. Like that. Right. But but he he talked about employee engagement, and it was the number of people he had, and I don't remember the number, so I won't say it that we're doing just enough work in organizations to not get fired was scary high. And so that's not going to cut it for these self-organizing teams. And so this has implications on who we hire, expectations set when we onboard people, how we model it, um, how we reward people. So it's, it's, when I say aspirational, I don't mean impossible. What I'm yeah, saying is it's right. aspirational in that let's set the bar there and but let's not assume it's just going to happen. You know, what can we do to set the conditions in which? 
And probably the single biggest thing I've seen in the, uh, the research on this is some tie to meaning. There's some, there's some tie to people see that it's, it's bigger than just, you know, like at one financial services company, a guy said, meaning in my job, all we do is make rich people richer. Yeah. <laughs> he goes, I don't see any meaning in that. But we talked about, well, you make other people in your company's job easier. And how do you do yeah. that? And yeah. so, so, you know, something about this is the why. And, and uh, Adam Grant, I've had him twice on the podcast. And he said, how do you say it? If you can get somebody who benefits from the team's work, but they don't typically get a line of sight to that person. So whoever, whoever benefits from your work, get that person in front of your team and get them to say, you know, Stephen, I've listened to your podcast now. I've listened to a bunch of episodes. You have helped me, Stephen, become a better project manager. What's that going to do to you? Right. Uh, so, so it's right. much more motivating. So if we can get somebody in front of our team, you know, that, that could maybe be something where people see, wow, what we're doing here really makes a difference. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned uh, Patrick Lencioni earlier, mm-hmm. and, and what you just described there reminded me of something he covered in his book, Three Signs of a Miserable mm-hmm. Job. <laughs> you know, and of course, I don't know that book. <laughs> yeah, I thought it was quite good, but he, a uh, number of years ago that I read it, but he, you know, what he's really describing there when he talks about the three signs of a miserable job, you can kind of turn the whole thing around and look at yeah. three things that have to be true for a job mm. to be sticky and satisfying mm. and, and so forth. And one of those things, and I'm sure I won't say it exactly as he did, mm-hmm. but mm. one of those things is that you must know every day to whom your job makes a difference or whose life mm. you make work through the work that you do. Yeah. So whether you're an, an executive assistant that makes that CEO's life work right. or whether yours happens to be an end customer, consumer, yeah. whose life you make work, right. that's part of what you have to understand. And I hear that reflected in, in, uh, in what you're describing. It's even well. more powerful than just saying know who your customer is. The way yeah. you said it was so much even more practical. Yeah. Well, there yeah. you go. Patrick yeah. Lencioni. There you so. go. He's worried now, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Listen, I know we're going we're gonna to run out of time. You're yeah. going to dash out of here in a few minutes. But another thing I wanted to visit is you have talked about, I know you've given a lot of thought to, how effective teams are constructed. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a selection component. There's a development component. There's an alignment component. There are skills and mindsets team mm-hmm. members need. There are skills and mindsets that leaders need. Mm-hmm. Where does the hiring process come into this when we have the opportunity and maybe sometimes we do but we don't Mm -hmm. recognize how important is hiring for team effectiveness wow you know that's a that's a great question there Stephen. because um there's uh, some interesting research by bob sutton out of stanford that talks about the impact of one bad apple okay so if someone Googled Wall Street Journal, uh, Bob Sutton, one bad apple, they'd get the article. And what he, one of the things he talks about, he, he actually breaks bad apple into like a good academic will be to what does it mean to be, he calls them jerks and slackers. And he has a definition mm-hmm. behind what those are. But just one, and I, I believe the number, just one on a team drops the team performance, I think it was 40%. Mm. One... It was like 35 or 40%, something like that. Just one person on the team and a slacker was a withholder of effort and a jerk was something like violators of social norms or something like that. Right. Just one person like that dropped the, dropped the performance of the team. Think about that. You're losing two days a week. 
out of the team performance because of that one person. So you bring up a great point of the how we hire and really thinking through. I mean, the, the, the research on hiring effectiveness, like inter, as far as interviewing questions, we stink at it. Yeah. Just generally speaking, I mean, there's all kinds of biases. There's all kinds of crazy stuff in there. But so, so organizations are trying to mitigate that in interesting different ways. But hiring and then one of the things he says in that article is the importance of the second decision, which is if for some reason, best of intentions, we hired somebody that's just not working out or they're that problem person on the team, the second decision, what do we do there? And I, I've been significantly impacted by um, Dr. Henry Cloud. He's got this statement. He says, you get what you tolerate. And there's a lot of teams that are tolerating that person that is not following what we're trying to do with this transformation or they're not, you know, sure, we're supposed to go up to the scrum board and figure out what in the backlog, which would be the best for me to do or whatever. And this person always takes the easiest one or milks it, you know, and so they're not really stepping up to the challenge. You get what you tolerate. I I was heavily impacted by a guy, uh, David McClellan, a Harvard researcher, no longer alive, but he goes, um, we're most motivated if we only have a 50 to 70% likelihood of success. Wow. Think about that. Yeah. I mean, most of us, right? We, we want yeah. 100% likelihood of success before you take a new job, new role, or whatever. Because we're most motivated if we only need a 50 to 70% likelihood of success. So, the way I've, how that's helped me there, Stephen, is we tolerate those people on a team that aren't carrying their own. But too often, we don't challenge them. They're, they're, they're not challenged. And so, uh, you know, if, if, if the person, if you've got a person, whoever's listening, if you've got a person on your team that's not carrying their weight, guess why they're not carrying their weight? You're tolerating it. And so what do you need to do to challenge them? Give them more than what we've been giving them. Because what we do is we end up taking advantage of the people that are like the nice people because they'll just take it and they'll get overwhelmed. So, I don't know, there's, there's, a, there's a lot to chew on with that 50 to 70% like yeah. success thing. Yeah, because that that goes for us, not just other people. Am I standing around on the margins because I don't have a hundred percent like of success? Am I been holding back on going off and getting a PMI ACP because well, what if I don't pass it? The PMP was hard enough or whatever. Am I holding back because I want plausible deniability? If that project goes south, I had nothing to do. With it, you know? Right, go all in. Yeah, and fifty to seventy percent like of success gets more motivated. Andy, it has been a pleasure. I could do this for hours. Oh, man. Thank you, Stephen. It's a real honor to be on your podcast. Thank you. Well, look forward to doing it again. For an easy way to stay up to date on Projectified with PMI, go to iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play Music, and PMI.org slash podcasts.